Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 26. For all the odd jobs and things I worked through high school, I saved probably upwards of 95%. So at the end of high school, I probably was sitting on maybe 15 grand. And during that time, I had bought a car. It's time for a new American dream, one that doesn't involve working in a cubicle for 40 years, barely scraping by. Whether you're looking to get your financial house in order, invest the money you already have, or discover new paths for wealth creation, you're in the right place. This show is for anyone who has money or wants more. This is the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going, everybody? I'm Scott Trench, and I'm here with my co-host, Miss Mindy Jensen. How are you doing today, Mindy? Scott, I am doing fantastic today. It is a beautiful day to be alive. The sun is shining. We've had some rain lately, but the sun is shining. My drive-in was super easy, and we have a fantastic show today. Awesome. Same here. Although it rained all day yesterday for us, so we had a little party here at my parents' house where we had some friends, but... Oh, Glad to hear it's going well in Denver. It's beautiful in Denver. You're really missing out. So Scott is traveling today. Today is an international episode. Today's show is normally for our listeners, but today's show is not for our listeners. I mean, that doesn't mean that we don't want them to not listen, but today's show is for your 12-year-old, your 15-year-old, your 20-year-old. The lessons that our guest shares today can literally change your child's entire financial future. Actually, today's show could be kind of second-handedly for our listeners. The ideas and concepts that Cody shares are great for older kids, but they can also be incorporated into financial teachings you share with your younger kids. Cody did a lot of things that I think set him up for a lot of options coming into life starting at 14, you know, 10 years old in, in probably you know elementary and middle school that then kind of translated all through high school. And I think as a parent, you know, this is the kind of story that you'd want your kid to hear about at some point in that in that phase so that they can begin maybe to emulate some of these behaviors and some of this mindset and then think about how, you know, what you as a parent can do to instill that behavior in your kid. Um, because Cody's parents, I think, probably did a couple of things here that gave him that great mindset. Yeah, I don't think Cody's parents did. I know Cody's parents did several things. He talks about his dad's 100% interest bank account program, which is pretty amazing. That's actually something I'm going to talk to my husband about doing for our kids, because it's one thing to tell your kids, oh, save money. But bank accounts are paying nothing right now. If you can double their money, his, I, I, you know what? I don't want to spoil this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I actually, his parents did a lot to help him. Uh, they they instilled some pretty amazing values, and the 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 best thing that they instilled in them is hard work. He learned from an early age that you have to work hard to get rewards, and he has done that his whole life. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets. We turned to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. 
This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Well, should we go ahead and bring Cody in? Cody, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Show. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me, guys. Where are you right now? Okay, so I'm in Brisbane, Australia. Been here since mid-January, and I'm actually leaving in three weeks. I'm kind of bummed out. Going to go back to reality, but it's been great so far. <laughs> All right, let's 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 start off with a few quick highlights of your trip. What are some cool things you've been doing down there? Oh man, so we just got back from an 11-day trip to Melbourne and Tasmania. We actually drove around the island of Tasmania for eight days and slept in the back of a Rav Four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's living like a college student. That, that's just one of the trips. That's probably the most extreme camper type trip we've done so far. We also went to Melbourne, Sydney. We went to New Zealand for a week. Um, we're going up to the Sunday coast, which is like these beautiful honeymoonish looking islands. We're actually going there next week. Uh, we're leaving Saturday. Yeah, we've just been popping all around. Also, we started off on the West Coast in Perth. So just been trying to see as much of this country as I can while I'm here. How did you get into this position? What led up to you kind of having a uh, six month period here in Australia? Okay. So I guess I met a really cool girl and now my girlfriend and she wanted to study abroad. I wanted to study abroad, but she's two years younger. And the way the program worked out, she could only study abroad her second semester, sophomore year. Since I was two years older, that would make it my second semester, senior year. So I was like, oh, I don't really want to do that my last semester. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to graduate early. One, I'm not going to have to pay the university a boatload of money to go travel. I can do it on my dime and do it for as cheap as possible like while still having fun. And I'll be able to go with my girlfriend. So I, I didn't have to go alone. Don't have to pay the university. So I'm just here on a working holiday visa is what they call it. So let's let's bring this back to personal finance here. So the reason that you're in this position is because you graduate early and you're kind of about to start your your career and I guess journey here. Can you walk us through uh, what you consider to be the starting point? So, like, you know, let's. What was this, the point at which you kind of began prepping yourself for college to be able to, to set yourself up to graduate early and maybe in the financial position you are, you're in today? So I think that started at a really young age. My parents were always really into like, making me study and just work hard, get my schoolwork done, earn the things I had to do. Like we used to have to. Do, I don't know if you have, have you ever used Puzzle Mania and Math Mania books that might be like within your age range. You're only, you're, you're, only, you're only a few years older than me, but there's, there's these little books with like math problems or English problems. And I had to used to do those. I'd have to finish a page to like watch a half an hour of TV <laughs> when I was a kid. So I just had this like I had to have this really good work ethic. And like at the same time, to go back to finance, my parents would always 
just save, save, save. They kind of pound that into my head. And so by the time I actually started earning money, I, I knew that I needed to save this money. The power of compound interest is just insane. So actually something my dad did for me up until age 10, because that's when I wasn't really getting any money at all. Uh, every contribution I'd make to my bank, he would match with hundred percent interest overnight. So I'd put like 50 bucks in from my grandma and the next day it would be a hundred. I'd be like, wow, that is the coolest thing ever. My money just doubled overnight. Super unrealistic interest rate in the real world, but it definitely taught me the value of if you put money away in an account that can gain interest for you and make money for you, that you can have a really powerful financial future. Okay. Hang on. I got to take notes because I got small kids. (laughs) I really like this idea. I haven't done this. And really what's $50 to me as the mom, but, but $50 and they're not putting $50 and they're only eight and 11, but this is amazing. I like this tip a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm no parent, but it definitely worked as from the child side of view just to teach me about frugality and saving and how important it is. And he used to have me do like compound interest calculations where he'd be like, what's two times two, what's four times four to show me how, how fast money can double. And it was crazy to me. So were there any rules on this? Would you have to keep it in there for a certain amount of time or, you know, could you not spend it within a couple of weeks? Because it seems like you put the money in, doubles overnight, you pull it right out and you have twice as much to spend. Is that, you know, that seems like a, there's got to be some rules around that. Good point. So actually, I mean, I think it was more of just the framework that he built. So, I mean, from age zero to 10, you're not exactly going out and spending your own money. You know, like I kind of got that mindset ingrained in me that early. Like I'd have to ask my mom to go to the store to buy me a toy at Toys R Us. And at that age, she'd either say no, or she'd buy it for me if she thought it was reasonable, but I wasn't really making too many purchases on my own. So I guess by the time I started earning money, which I I started making $5 an hour at age 10, that's why my dad stopped uh, contributing to my hundred percent interest bank account. I started working at my uncle's disc golf shop in the snack shack, just selling like chips and (laughs) giving back lost discs. So yeah, that's when I started my career. <laughs> <laughs> well, that kind of parlayed itself into a career. Spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> Cody has a lot to do with disc golf, but we'll get to that I, in a minute. Well, let, let's let's fast forward here. So at age, let's say with 14, uh, how much money were you kind of sitting on and what were your kind of financial choices looking like at that point? I probably had maybe two or $3,000 by like 14 just from working. I mean, I didn't work that much, but worked a decent amount and all of my savings got doubled. My savings rate was probably literally like 99%. <laughs> I would just, I would loathe spending money because I loved seeing it double in the bank. It was like the coolest thing ever. So when I started actually working, I got my first job as a host, like a, at a restaurant and I was making still pretty crappy money, but I was putting everything away, still living with my parents, obviously. Well, I guess not obviously some people have less fortunate situations at age 14, but I was living with my parents. I could save pretty much everything I made and for all the odd jobs and things I worked through high school, I saved probably upwards of 95%. So at the end of high school, I probably was sitting on maybe 15 grand. And during that time, I had bought a car and I kind of wish I bought a cheaper car at the time. My dad convinced me to get a little more expensive car, but that's beside the point. Um, so yeah, at the end of high school, it's definitely in an advantageous situation. Awesome. And then, and so, uh, you know, I assume with working this job for this many hours per week that your grades really suffered during this period, right? No. So kind of like I mentioned before, I just had a really good work ethic. And like, if I got less than an A, it's not like I got like beaten or anything like that, but it was just like, just a bad look for me to get like poor grades. So I, I, me and my brother really had that ingrained in our head. Like you have to get good grades to succeed. It's really important for you to learn to like educate yourself to become better. And so just throughout high school, I was always 
just aiming for the top, like shooting for the top. I'd always do like extra credit. I'd always go above and beyond. And yeah, I did graduate with a pretty good GPA. I actually graduated, graduated sixth in my class. So it didn't oh, wow. suffer too much, didn't suffer too much from uh, <laughs> the sports and the work. All right. So a couple, couple quick questions here. What advantages do you think that it, you know, having, uh, starting with two or $3,000 at age 14 and then kind of building up, you know, maybe another 10 to 12 throughout high school afforded you? I know you talked about a car. Can you talk, tell us about that purchase and maybe some of the other advantages that, you know, how that impacted your life positively in high school? Yeah. So I guess I'll go back to the car, which is a mistake that I really wish I could take back. I'm basically crying talking about it now. But I bought a, in 2012, I bought a 2009 Volvo, like S40 with a sports package. It was just, I bought it for 12 grand. And that was a deal because my dad knew the guy. He was like best friends from primary school or something. And he sold it to me for 50% off. And like that, and that was a deal. But I mean, if I could go back, I wish I bought like a $2,000 beater and just drove it to the end of high school. I, I'm just thinking about the compound returns from age 16 when I bought the car till 22 now. I'm like, oh, I could have like almost double the money with the stock market over the last six years. Well, well so did you pay cash for this car? Yes, I paid cash just straight out of my bank account. So that's, I mean, that's a huge advantage here. I mean, you, because of the work ethic you put in starting at age 10 to 14, and then they, <laughs> they increased there in high school, you're able to pay cash for a pretty cool car right there in high school. And you know, you're talking about it as a mistake you could have invested, but still <laughs> like, that's a really good situation. You're driving up in a sporty Volvo every, you know. Yeah, no, it definitely was a cool car, but at the time I thought it was the coolest thing ever. But then looking back after you get into this five world, I'm like, Oh man, all you think about is the compound interest. <laughs> <laughs> so I would like to say that you can't go back and change time. So stop beating yourself up over it. You're still um, slightly ahead of the, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. How old are you, Cody? 22. 22. So I would venture a guess that you are slightly ahead of the average 22 year old. Well, let's ask two more questions here about the high school space. So, so first off, what do you think? What prevented your peers from doing this kind of similar thing? Because most most kids do not go through high school accumulating, uh, playing three sports, getting good grades, t- graduating the, the top ten of the class, and then accumulating close to thirty thousand dollars by the time they graduate high school from from hard work. Yeah, and yes, some of that was matched, especially in the early years, by your parents. Yeah. but for that bank account, but. What, what was preventing the other students from kind of achieving this? Okay. I think, I think a thing just in society today is kind of the entitlement mindset. And I've seen that a lot growing up, like in just primary school and middle school, high school, college, it's like, you should, like, I should get a good grade. That's what people are thinking. I should do the minimal amount of work and receive an A. And I don't know where or when that started. I've, I kind of noticed it. And I know that a lot of people in the generation above me have mentioned like they didn't get uh, trophies when they lost a soccer game when they were kids. Like, and now everybody's a winner, you know, it's kind of just like this entitlement mindset where everybody wins, everybody deserves the best. And so people don't want to work for it. And I think that's what I saw a lot. Like people would want to spend the minimal amount of time on their homework. Even if it was something that maybe interested them, they just want to get it over with. They don't care about the learning aspect. They just want to do the homework, get the grade. And they're hoping that that grade is a good grade, but doesn't make too much sense if you're not putting the effort in. And so you think that the difference that kind of separated you is that you put 100% into everything you were doing at this point, school, sports, work, and and that was what kind of allowed you to, to make that distinguishment in all those areas. I, I assume you're a good athlete in, in addition to your grades and your 
finances here. He won the pull-up contest at Camp uh, <laughs> back in January of 2018. So, we'll plug there, Cody. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Yeah, so I guess the things that set me up was just my parents, again, going back to, like, you have to work hard to succeed in this world. And that was just something that they really instilled into me. And I, I guess I just carried that through high school and through college. Yeah, that's awesome. uh, the, everybody gets the same thing no matter what effort is put forth. Isn't that called communism? And that doesn't work. <laughs> and... Yeah. Well, or on the other side, oh, why should I do anything? I get everything that everybody else gets, no matter how little effort I put into there. So yeah, that entitlement mindset is a huge, huge thing. That is, uh, I don't even know how I want to say this. What prevented your peers from doing the same thing? Being entitled. Yeah, you're not going to get anywhere when you feel like you are owed anything. I think I think that it's interesting that your work ethic, though, we're pointing out here, has contributed to excellence in multiple areas. It's not like you're just like a good athlete and that's it. And that's where you put, you know, or you have the grades. It's or you are able to work hard and save money. No, you're you're excelling in all these different areas because of that. What what can, can you know? You talked about some of the things that your parents have done here and done that. What kind of specific things do you remember that your parents were doing that might have contributed to this for you? I think a thing that they kind of taught me to do is goal setting. And so that I've always been a goal setter. And I think that really helps you just accomplish, accomplish goals. Nice. But yeah, if you set, if you set many checkpoints along the way, it just feels good accomplishing. And like, once you get rolling, it's, it's hard, it's hard to stop the boulder once it starts rolling. And if you set goals for yourself, you're like, okay, I want to get my, so back to sports, I want to get my 40 yard dash down to a, I don't know, four, seven, or I want to get a X grade on this test and just like working constantly towards a goal really helps you kind of shape the activities that you want to do to achieve that goal. I think that's something that's really, really helped me. Awesome. So, so a couple and a couple of things that you've, you've mentioned here as well is you have the gold setting, you have the uh, matching on the savings account, you have the just like general uh, example that sounds, sounds like they set up just this kind of hard work and all these things seem to really have helped you a lot here, which I find really interesting and, and, and very simple and straightforward. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if I'll just hop into it now. Another thing that was huge in high school was AP exams. And that's something that people shy away from just because of the name. I think people are just like, oh, like, why would I want to go through that extra work? It doesn't even matter anyway, because for some reason, they don't teach you the incredible savings that AP and also CLEP exams, CLEP exams, I did not have the liberty of taking advantage of in high school because I learned about them a little too late as after I started like really getting into the hack in the college game. But AP, an AP exam for people who don't know is an advanced placement exam. And basically it will be on a subject like social studies or science or English. And you take the exam. If you score, it's usually a four or five as a scale out of five, a zero to five. You score a four or five, you're exempt from taking that class in college. So it counts as college credit. So if you're going to a private university that costs 60000 a year to go and say you take four classes a semester. So you have eight classes for the year just some back of the envelope math. So each class is like around 7,000. You're saving $7,000 by taking an AP exam. And all it is is just taking a different class. You're taking AP science instead of regular science in high school. It's just, it's a crazy small choice that can make an enormous difference in your financial future. And then the uh, the CLEP exams. All right, don't ask me what it stands for. It's uh, C-L-E-P exams. I, I totally forget what it stands for, but it's basically the same as an AP. It's just on a specific subject. Um, you actually don't have to take like a course. You don't have to take a CLEP course. You could just say, oh, I'm really good at calculus. I'm going to take the CLEP calculus course. You can go onto the CLEP website, sign up. I think it's maybe two or $300 for a course, but that's a lot better than seven grand or even a few grand at a public university. And you can just get that general education requirement knocked out. And you could, I know people who have got two years ahead, 
like just coming into college with 60 college credits out of 120 by taking AP and CLAP exams. It's just absolutely insane. Okay. I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into this because I have children. And like we said earlier, this episode is for like the older kids, the 12 year old, the 15 year old, the 20 year old. I uh, let's pretend I'm in high school and I, when can you start taking AP classes? Yeah. So I think typically the first year is sophomore year. Anyway, in my high school, it depends on the high school. Um, my high school was pretty good at offering AP. If you're at a really like rural high school, they might have very few AP. You can take independent AP courses by yourself online. I know it's a little harder to stay motivated. You don't have a teacher, but you do have like an online guide. I had a few friends who did that. Um, but I'd say, I mean, you can start sophomore year. So if your kids wanted to start, you could just get, start prepping them. You could get them signed up for sophomore year. They could take upwards of five, four or five AP classes in one semester. I mean, you could take 20 by the time you graduate. It's, it's pretty crazy. It's almost every subject. You can take 20 classes in high school that count for your high school diploma and also count for your college courses. And I'm, I'm assuming these are free because you're taking them in high school. Like you don't pay to go to high school. Well, I'm, so I'm the, sorry, a public high school. <laughs> yeah. So the courses are free, like an AP course in high school is free. I think the AP exam, a lot of the, a lot of them are subsidized by the high school. I think I paid like $75 for all of, for each one of my AP exams, I took four. So it wasn't a big hit, but I got exempt from all those in college. So, I mean, that's like, a, that was just a huge savings for me. And I was like a, more than a semester ahead coming into college. So every AP exam that you take, like the $75 charge or whatever, gets you, I'm assuming you have to pass the exam, but then that gets you out of a class in college. You don't have to pay for it, but you still get credit for it. So, for example, I take AP English. That was one I took. AP English in high school. You take the test. If you get a, the scale is from zero to five. If you get a four or five, it counts as college credit. Pretty much any university, like I'd say 99.9% of universities accept AP exams as credit, unless you're at some crazy university that I've never heard of. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, and you, you just are completely just checked off the checkbox. It says general education, English requirement done when you're in college. You don't have to take it. Wow. I thought my big hack was going to a community college for this, but it's still, I mean, I'm a little older than you. It's, it was a couple of hundred dollars for the classes when I went to college, um, probably before you were born. <laughs> I, I, I also had a number of AP classes in, in, in high school as well, and they helped me uh, avoid some of these classes in college. And, and instead of graduating early, like Cody, I actually uh, got a, a dual major and double minor partially because I, I had taken some of those AP classes that counted towards college credit. The one that I had wish that I had done in high school but skipped on was the foreign language because uh. if you get the foreign language, you actually can avoid a very lengthy amount of hours. Like it was two sem- – I had to take two semesters of Spanish in college in order – because I did not pass this AP exam in high school. If I had uh. just done that, I might have been able to skip this and not have to take it. And, and obviously Spanish is a great language to study, but it wasn't really relevant to the career I was pursuing. So it was a, a very large uh, amount of time I had to invest in the senior year of college. Oh, to <laughs> but yeah, these AP exam, these AP classes, I mean, these are around when I was in high school, a few, you know, 10 years ago or so. But in order to, you know, a couple of things to do here is you didn't mention this, but I bet you that you prepared in a lot of ways to take these classes in middle school right? By taking kind of the advanced classes there, doing your homework, getting good grades so that you could place into these advanced classes in high school. And I think you can still take them if you are in, if you are already in high school and moving on, but it gets a lot easier if you can kind of keep your grades up and get these things in, in place prior to high school. 
and work harder then so that, that the coursework is much easier and you're able to uh, get into those. Is that correct? So yeah, totally agree. I mean, if you start taking those advanced classes earlier, I think the when they start branching out is like sixth grade, they start like kind of tearing out the student learning levels. But it's not like if your kid is not in an advanced class right now, they're absolutely screwed for AP exams. You don't have to have like certain prerequis- prerequisites. Anybody can enroll in an AP course. It's just you just have to have the grit and the determination to finish and work a little bit harder. Honestly, it's not that much harder than the regular class. You're just kind of learning more geared toward the test rather than just like learning random facts your teacher might want you to know about the subject. This is an amazing way to just skip some huge college debt. I mean, everybody talks about how difficult it is to pay for college. A couple of uh, weeks ago, I think it was episode 22, we had uh, Travis Hornsby on from the Student Loan Planner. And he talked about how you can pay off or defer your your student loans, your six-figure student loans. Here's a way to defer or just completely absolve yourself of these student loans by of some of these student loans just by bringing in some high school credit. I mean, what are you doing in high school? I would much rather have my kids not be working a job and instead working on not having to take all these college classes. I mean, how oft, how soon did you get out of college? You were a semester early? Yes. So three and a half years. Okay. And I, I actually, I could have graduated in three years, but I kind of wanted to just live at college one more year, <laughs> one, one, more, one more semester. Honestly, that's the reason. I just, I really liked the friend group I was with. We were living in, living in an awesome house. And yeah, I just, I was like, all right, I'll just stick it out another semester. The last semester of college, I, I just took, it was, it was the most amazing feeling. I just took classes that I actually wanted to learn. And it sounds crazy that like, that's not what college is, but a lot of the classes you take, it's just classes you have to take for your major. I don't know. I don't know who set that up or why it's like that, but you, you really don't get to just pick and choose the exact classes you want. Like you have to take this class to get to this class. And it's just all of these hoops and hurdles you have to jump through to get that degree. But the last semester, I really got to take the classes I wanted. Awesome. And, and one, one other point about these AP classes, by the way, is that these are often looked for by college admissions, not not they're not looking to have you skip their an, a semester or half a semester or whatever. They're looking because you're, they know that you're taking rigorous coursework and excelling in it. And they can tell that by an objective national standard on these uh, test scores for these AP exams um, that tell you if you pass or not. Can you quickly give us a so it, it sounds like this CLEP stuff is the exact same thing as AP, except for it's an online course that you take outside the scope of your normal high school curriculum doesn't count for high school credit or anything, but it can be used to give you a college credit that you can do in addition to your AP work. Is that correct? Yes, that is completely correct. So I wouldn't, I would say in addition to like in, in the terms of to supplement a class that's not offered by AP, but I wouldn't take like the, you wouldn't take AP calculus and then take the CLEP exam for calculus. That's redundant. And you'd just be knocking out the same class, but yeah, a CLEP exam is basically a self-studied exam. And I think there are online courses and stuff. I don't know the specifics because I didn't do it, but I know that most high schools don't often offer CLEP courses, but I'd say 90% of high schools do offer AP courses. I think it's honestly just up to preference. I really don't know if there's an advantage to either. You can also do self-study AP exams. So I could, if my school didn't offer AP English, for for example, I could get the AP English book, take an online course and take the AP English exam without taking the class in high school. Gotcha. So you made all these great choices, academics, sports, finances, all that kind of stuff. Let's move on to the selection of your college and kind of how you finance that. So wh- how are you, what were you looking for in a college? So I was actually torn between, so I, I knew I was going to study finance and economics. So I was kind of geared towards that. And honestly, for a 
bad reason, I guess, because I heard I just after doing a lot of Google searches, I learned that you can make a lot of money in finance after four years of a college degree. And that's kind of what drove me because I was kind of obsessed with money at that point from I mean, you guys know from my upbringing and just the savings rate and everything like that. I was like, oh, I'm going to earn so much money. It's going to be awesome. So I, I started looking at schools for, for like finance and economics. I was down to like I, I looked at I applied to a bunch of schools. I was down to two final schools, one with a state school, one is a private university, the private university. I actually got a half off like academic scholarship. And it was still 30 grand per year. And I was like, oh, that's going to hurt. So I ended up choosing the state university, basically just from my frugal roots. I was like, I can't, I don't want to come out with student debt. My parents said they'll help me as much as they can, but I knew that they weren't going to be able to take on a 30 grand a year bill. So I ended up going to state university and paying only about five grand a year. So that worked out a lot better. I came out at the end of uh, three and a half years with a little over 15 grand paid, no debt. My parents paid most of it for me. I helped out when I could. But that was a that was just the choice that set me up for like huge financial success. Because I remember that episode with Travis and student loan debt just cripples people, especially when people get up into the hundreds of thousands. It takes years and years to pay back. Yeah. Some of the content, uh, comments that we got from that episode, one guy sent in, he said, I know a guy who was a veterinarian and he committed suicide because he had such crippling student loan debt. And Getting a 50% scholarship is really awesome until you do the math and the 50% yeah. is still, what, six times as much as it would cost you to go to the state school. What do you think would be your level of education going to the private school versus going to the state school? I mean, did you get six times less of an education? No, definitely not. So yeah, that's something I like to highlight. I mean, there are definitely advantages to private school, but there are advantages to public school or state school as well. So Private school is something I've noticed, especially in the business space, they do have a really tight network. So you might have a company that literally recruits from X university. Like say you go to Harvard, they might only recruit from Harvard. And that's just a thing that you, you can't really work around. It's very hard to break into a role that only recruits from a certain college. But at the state university level, if you go to a state university, oftentimes they have a huge alumni network because a lot of people go to state schools because they're cheaper. So you have access to people who work at hundreds or thousands of companies within your industry. So something I did was like I'd, I'd reach out to people on LinkedIn when I was in college and I had an alumni at almost every like pretty much every major financial institution that I wanted to work at. So I always I always kind of had a foot in the door if I could get the conversation rolling. That was a huge advantage of the state school. And obviously the cost savings is the biggest advantage. But state schools are not as bad as it seems. And it's really all about all going back to that entitlement mindset. I think private schools might have smaller classrooms so they can kind of push you a little harder on, on an individual student level. If you have a 400 people in a lecture hall, the teacher isn't going to point you out and say, hey, you should work a little harder, you know, because they don't really know you. But if you're the type of person who already has that hardworking mindset, I think you can really excel and learn a ton from a state university. Wow. You mentioned using LinkedIn. Did you just yes. randomly, I don't use LinkedIn very much. Did you just randomly send notes to people? Yes. So this was something that was actually like baffling to me when I, I first joined this thing called the finance society when I got into school and the kid, the, the senior that ran it, he was just, he was just a whiz kind of just, he was like going into, into investment banking and he was just teaching us all the tips and tricks, like how to talk, how to eat, how to connect the people like in a business sense. So he's like, reach out to three people on LinkedIn every single day and just send them a message saying you're interested in what they do at their company and try to set up a phone call. He's like 90% of the people won't even answer you, but the 10% that will will just help you in uh, will help you tremendously in your road to like success or landing a career down the road. And so that's what I did. I was reaching out to two to three people pretty much every single day. And I had an Excel document 
of over 500 contacts that I'd contacted over my college career from companies that I was, I was interested in and just like getting these phone calls and kind of getting your foot in the door. And I mean, talking to these people on the phone makes you a lot more presentable in interviews. You can actually talk. You don't just freeze up. You're actually conversational. You can talk about the markets. You can talk about whatever the job might be, like whatever might be specific to the job. One word of caution is don't reach out to people and say, hey, can I have an internship? Because they're just going to say, who the <laughs> Who the heck is this guy asking me for an internship? You just, you want to say something like, Hey, I noticed you work at X company. I'm really interested in that field. Like, could you tell me more about what you do and like how you got there? Uh, also another word to the wise is aim for people who are younger. So on LinkedIn, you can tell people's age usually just by their picture. Um, if you're reaching out to <laughs> a 50 or 60 year old managing director, chances are they're not going to answer you and they're not going to have time for a phone call. If you're reaching out to someone who looks like me or someone in their like early twenties, they're probably going to pick up the phone. They just got into their analyst or associate role and they'd be more than happy to have a conversation with a college student. And that's just, you can just get your foot in the door. It's that they can push your resume to HR and say, Hey, this awesome kid just reached out to me. So I definitely aim for younger, but if you can get a conversation with those and then you can yeah, leverage conversations with higher ups. Yeah. So you're, you're reaching out to two to three. This is, this is a great tip by the way. And this is, and and this may not even be a tip just for college students. This might be for everyone in their careers of all time. You know, like, like just keep reaching out to people and getting to know people and seeing how you can learn from them. Like people love talking about what they do. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, you said that two or three, you reach out two or three people today and, or a day, would you have one call a week then or how much time, how many people were responding to you? Did you see an improvement in that success rate above 90% not responding over time or how'd that work? Over time, definitely. Sophomore year, people did not care at all that I was reaching out to and they're like, who is this guy? I'm just going to click delete. (laughs) So (laughs) I maybe had like one or two phone calls a week, but I mean, I was, I was pedaling pretty hard. I, I guess as I, as my career advanced, my resume got stronger and I had internships and a lot of experience. I started getting like maybe a 40% call setup rate, like uh, senior year and junior year. So it definitely got better as time went on. Awesome. What were your, um, I'm sorry to abruptly transition here, but what were your uh, extracurriculars like while you were doing this? And you mentioned the finance society here. What, what else were you doing in college besides that? Yeah. So finance society, I only did for maybe the first two years. It was kind of like the intro level stuff. Um, and I didn't, I kind of stopped attending meetings after the first two years. The most like instrumental thing in my college learning though, was this thing called the minimum fixed income fund. So we actually traded corporate credit on the school's endowment money. And so I was looking at bonds, mostly like in junk bonds, because they actually move more than like high, like than really stable blue chip credit. Like a Disney bond is not going to move many points in a day, but we were looking at high yield bonds and it's, it's basically like equity analysis. Like you're valuing a stock, finding free cash flow, finding intrinsic value, except you're taking it one step farther because you're looking at debt and cash flow and just, it's diff- it's just a different part of the cap structure but it's basically the same financial modeling and same stuff. So that was, I mean, I learned, I think I learned more in that fund, which probably took up 20 hours a week than I did in all of my college classes. What is this fund called? The Minuteman what? You said that really fast. The Minuteman Fixed Income Fund. And this is a mutual fund? No. So it's, it was the school I went to's endowment fund. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Not the full endowment. We got a piece of the endowment to manage which was like awesome because we were managing real money. So we had to be good. You had to like, it wasn't like anybody could join this group. I had to go through like a pretty extensive interview process to get in. And then, yeah, just work my butt off over the next two years after I got in. I got in my first semester sophomore year. And then I, so I guess to, to, to add on, I was also part of the investment club. So that kind of 
sprung my financial interest, I guess, investment club. That's where I first did like a, I did a soccer pitch competition. So that kind of sprung my interest just into looking into companies. I was like, oh, finance is pretty cool. And that catapulted me into the fixed income fund. So those were the most, those are the two most influential extracurriculars I was a part of. I guess fun extracurriculars. I played intramural basketball, flag football. So I was still doing fun stuff. It wasn't, I'm just, a, I'm not just this finance nerd in these weird <laughs> clubs. I'm a normal guy. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say these, these clubs seem to have nothing to do with the concept of financial independence at all, right? <laughs> oh no. Just so, kidding. That was a bad joke. <laughs> you love you're those. You're right. You're totally, yeah, you do love those. I appreciate those, Scott. I like those jokes on the show. I, I remember actually talking to you about this at Camp Fi. It's very different being smart financially from a corporate perspective and being smart financially from a personal perspective. They are two completely different animals. And that's something I noticed. I mean, I have friends who have just, who have spent 10 grand in a day because that's what they got for their signing bonus. And I'm just like, oh. Yeah. So why do you think that is? Why do you think these people in your clubs here, these are people who are interested in finance, who theoretically understand finance, who are managing maybe millions of dollars for this endowment fund, I imagine. Why are they not interested in learning about their personal finances? I so think the why, idea- Why did you become interested in it versus them, I guess? <laughs> Okay. So I'll tackle your first question first. Like, why aren't they interested? I think just the mindset in finance, especially is just, it's just money hungry, power crazy. That's like the typical wall street investment banker mindset. Sorry to any wall street investment bankers listening to this. I've had a lot of conversations with them and I had like a lot of interviews and it's just, that's just the mindset and vibe you get from those offices. People are just out to make more money, make more money, make more money. And so they don't really worry about their expenses. They don't care how much they spend because they can always make more money. That's, that's the mindset. They're like, it doesn't matter. Like I'll make $500,000 next year. I can spend $500,000 this year. And it's just, it's just this crazy mindset that just perpetuates. And when you're 40 years old and you're in $500,000 worth of debt, cause you have three houses and a yacht, you're like, Oh wow. I really wish I could have turned back the clock. Huh. And started when you were 10. Yeah. It started when you were 10. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. 
BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. Saving for a down payment, a wedding, or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost, so combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. NetSuite.com slash BP money. So why do you think you were different? Why do you think that you, you know, weren't, didn't, you know, you were so interested in finance and all this coming in? What was the difference, like kind of that you, where you discovered maybe this, another way to approach money? Yeah. So I kind of did have that money hungry thing. I, I told you that's why I kind of chose finance going into college. And I really thought, I was like, oh, I can't wait to be an investment banker. I'm going to make so much money. It's going to be awesome. But I still had those roots of savings. So I was like, I'm going to make a hundred plus thousand dollars straight out of college and I'm going to save it all. I'm going to be rich. And yeah, so I guess that was the difference. It's just that foundation that my parents had laid for me, that savings mindset. I, I did think that I was just going to keep making money, making money, making money, but I also thought I was going to save it. And I always kind of had this financial independence thought in my head. I never really had a framework to it or could put words to it. I didn't really know the concept. I didn't know anything about the 4% rule. I didn't know anything about like Roth, Roth conversion ladders and all these crazy tips and tricks you hear in the financial independence community. But I mean, after I got introduced at age 19, actually, I was fortunate. My mom told me because I was always, always kind of had an entrepreneurial spirit to me. She's like, you should read this book. It was a four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. And I was like, OK, 
gave it a read and I was just hooked. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. You can earn, like you can get, you can earn income without working. Like you can get, make, set up these passive income streams that pay you for your life. I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. So I just started like brainstorming right away. And I, I did have two failed businesses. Scott, I actually did have a, I know you have the, the trenches tees. I think you mentioned yeah. <laughs> your failed. I also had a failed clothing company just cause I didn't really put any effort into it. And I also had a tutoring company. I tried to start and I was going to like be the head of it and hire all these tutors. That didn't work at all just because I didn't put the effort in. But I know we'll jump back to this a little after I talk about the more college stuff. But I did finally have some successful ventures after reading about Tim, the Tim Ferriss and the four hour work week. So that kind of just jump started my financial independence journey. Did you work during college? Yes. Yeah, so I was a, actually, I was, I, this is the best job ever. I got I got really lucky that I got this job. I'm not, not smarter than the rest, not better. I just got lucky that I got this teacher's assistant job. I had a senior who was working in operation information management. So basically just to sum it up, that is a course about Microsoft Office. So Excel, PowerPoint, Access. And she was graduating and she knew me from my hometown. So I hadn't talked to her in like two or three years, but she's like, hey, do you want this job? You're a pretty smart kid. I was like, oh, all right, cool. Took the job and it was just the best job I could ever ask for. So not only did I learn become like an Excel guru, not to toot my own horn, but I am really good at Excel because I've spent probably thousands of hours on it and teaching a course on it. I independently taught like a 30 person course on Excel, but I also had lab hours and what lab hours were, where I monitored the lab. And so I'd sit in the lab for 20 hours a week and do my homework and maybe answer questions for an hour out of that 20 hours and get paid $13 an hour the whole time. So I was making like $400 every other week doing Lab hours. Homework. Your homework. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was there were, huge. There were a lot of jobs like this at my school as well. And my a big regret of mine is that I didn't like, take one and do exactly that. You know, it's a boon to your grades and your finances. And it's just all during the day. It doesn't impact your social life. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, I, and again, I was saving 90, 95% of my income. I did help somewhat uh, pay for school, but what were my expenses? I had my, luckily my first two years, I had my dining paid for by my parents, which is, wasn't too expensive. And I actually, the scholarships I got, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, helped out with that. They actually, they helped pay for, for food, but my real expenses were alcohol, which was like a, a $12, <laughs> a $12 handle a week. <laughs> <laughs> nice. What was the handle of choice? Oh, Rubinoff. Ah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you What's go. Rubinoff. Oh, it's, it's only after 21, of course, right? <laughs> only after 21. Yes. <laughs> I, ca- I strategically came into college at age 21. Nice. Good job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So how does somebody find these jobs, these jobs, these air quotes around the word jobs, because it's, you're not really working, but you are getting paid for it. I mean, I'm not saying that you're slacking, but I mean, if there's nobody asking you questions, what are you supposed to do? Hound people and say, Hey, can I help you with anything? Do you have any questions? They're like, no, go away. I'm just doing my homework. So <laughs> yeah, how do you find so, those? So I guess I didn't really know the concept until I got the job, but then I realized, wow, there's a lot of these jobs. So in like the engineering and tech space, there's the same exact lab positions where you just basically sit in a computer lab and monitor the lab. They just want to make sure people aren't like defacing the property, stealing computers, stuff like that. And I'm pretty sure most universities that I've ever been to have a computer lab or some kind of library lab or something like that. But I, the, my best my best word of advice is just get a job somewhat related to your major. So Microsoft Excel is huge in finance. So I was really fortunate to get that. But even if not, just get one of those like lab type jobs or a library office job, and you will definitely have time to do your homework. What not to do is to get a like cafeteria or 
cafe job at your university because you have no networking opportunities, you get paid terribly, and you can't do your homework at all. So that's my biggest word of advice. I mean, obviously, if you can't find any other jobs and you need money, then sure, do that. But there are definitely those jobs where you can do your homework and get paid, and it's awesome. And I think it's just about keeping your eyes open and looking for them, right? And yes. saying yes to opportunities that go down that rabbit hole. I mean, I didn't even look for them until it was too late. I think mean, you just start a semester ahead of time and you might get it for the next semester. Exactly. Yes. And I, I got it my first semester sophomore year, like I said. So it wasn't like I just hopped in. Obviously, if I hadn't taken the course, I probably shouldn't be a teacher's assistant anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, that, it did take a little bit and I had to network a little bit. I, I had that friend from high school, but I also had to interview for the position. So just levering my, leveraging myself, having the exposure, because I was talking to those finance professionals. So I had interview practice. I had practice talking on the phone. So that helped a lot. So just kind of setting yourself up for these opportunities. I know, Scott, you like create your own luck. And I like that too. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Last yeah. week's episode, Debbie said, you find what you're looking for. And if you're not looking for this job, you're not going to find it. Exactly. Yeah. You, you just got to look. I mean, you really just got to look and the opportunities will start to present themselves if you just put yourself out there. All right. So how are you able to apply to the, so many different scholarships and set yourself up for to get to get these kind of options going into college? Yeah. So I guess one thing I did was what I like to call templifying everything. So with scholarships, I'd say it's like the 80-20 rule. 80% of the scholarships, you can use the same five or six essays with give or take a few tweaks to apply. So, I mean, I probably applied to 100, maybe a little more than 100 scholarships over my four years of college. And some of them, if you get in early, so I was applying to in high school as well. Yeah, I should mention, st- take a step back. If your kid's in high school or you're in high school listening to this, start applying now. Junior, Even junior year in high school, you can start locking in four-year scholarships for college. It's absolutely insane. So I have two favorite scholarship sites. One is Scholly, and the other one is it's S-C-H-O-L-L-Y.com. That one is $2.99 per month, but I can guarantee you that you will make your money back, te- like not tenfold, a, a thousandfold or, or even more. I mean, just earning one $500 scholarship, you're going to pay that back. Is that $2.99 a month or $2? No, 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 no. Sorry. $2.99 per month. Oh my God. No, that's no, even no. better. Oh no. I would never ever <laughs> tell someone to sign up for a, a potential scholarship site for $2.99. $299 a month. No, no, no. I think a lot of people are thinking that that's even worthwhile at $299 a month. Okay. No, that's what I'm $2.99 a month. And they're just, they, from my perspective, have the best matchmaking, like your skill set and your background to scholarships that I've ever seen. Um, so you, you type in all your criteria, you type in your major, like your ethnicity, your, I don't know, your gender, like everything, every little thing, your, your, uh, heritage, like where you grew up, like every little thing can factor into different scholarships. You could be, you guys could get the Colorado scholarship, you know, and there's just all these little scholarships from, for every, every different little niche. And there could maybe only be five people applying to the scholarship. So it's really worth just checking out everyone. So that's scholarly.com. Scholarships.com is also pretty good. That one is free, but it's not as good matchmaking. Again, I think you do get what you pay for, even though it's $2.99 a month, it is a little better matchmaking. So I did find a lot more personalized and specific like scholarships to my skill set and my background on Scholarly. So that was huge. And so even applying to one, just like set a, set a reminder on your phone or apply to one every day or every other day. And if you already have these five or six templates set up with these like general questions, like 
Why do you want to pursue X major? What's your biggest goal in life? Tell me about your biggest failure. What did you learn from it? Those are just like the generic scholarship questions you hear about all the time. And you can like, you can just set up these templates and maybe make a few tweaks to them. It should take maybe 20 or 30 minutes to make a tweak to X scholarship. And you could probably do one of these every day or every other day. And by the end of your scholarship hunting period, you've applied to 50 or hundred scholarships and you're bound to get at least one. I mean, if you don't get one, that's just really, really unfortunate. And you're probably doing something <laughs> wrong, but the barriers to entry are not too high on some of these scholarships. I mean, there's honestly 10 or less people that are applying to some of these local community scholarships and you might not even know they exist unless you, unless you start looking. And the same thing can be said for internships. So do the exact same thing with what's called a cover letter. So I'm, I'm sure people are uh, familiar with a re- what a resume is. It's usually a one page piece of paper, just detailing your work experience, what your skills are, stuff like that. A cover letter is expressing your interest in X company. So I want to work for Google, say. You're like, okay, you just tell them why you want to work for Google, why you could be an asset for their company. And it's basically the same thing as a scholarship. You write four, five, or six cover letters detailed to different companies within your specific subset. So like I had a cover letter for wealth management positions. I had a cover letter for investment banking positions. I had a cover letter for analyst positions. And they were all just slightly different, but you make it a little personalized. Maybe you include a person's name that you reached out to on LinkedIn, going back to the networking thing. You read, oh, I talked to, I talked to Scott on the phone. I met him on LinkedIn. Like, and they're like, oh, that he knows Scott. And then the HR recruiter brings it to Scott's desk. And like, Scott's like, yeah, this kid's awesome. And it's just getting your foot in the door that way. And if you have these templates set up, you can kind of mass apply to internships. And same thing with scholarships. It's just a huge advantage. I, I really think maybe in some specific cases, it's quality over quantity. If there's one company you want to work for, then don't do a mass cover letter. Make a really personalized cover letter. Talk about like this really fine grain specifics, why you want to work for that company. But I really think it's quantity over quality with these types of things, with scholarships, especially internships in the early years, because you don't know what you want to do. You just want to get your foot in the door. I have a comment about this. So I didn't apply for scholarships and internships, but I did apply for a lot of jobs once. I was, I decided I was done with my current job. I wanted a new one. My tip is reread right before you send it. I was, this was back in the day of fax machines, but reread the whole thing before you send it, because I sent a note to XYZ company professing my profound desire to work <gasps> for ABC company. So uh, there was, I'm like, oh, well, I'm not going to get that job. I already hit send. You can't like suck it back in. So yeah. I just, I, I didn't even follow up because I knew they weren't going to call me. So just one last time, right before you send it, make sure that the email address that you're sending to Bob at XYZ company is also the cover letter that says, I want to work at XYZ company. Yes. So I guess just a little tip, just another little actionable tip that people use. So all the parts that I change, I keep in capital letters and red font. So until all of the red font capital letters are gone, I do not send it because that is all the company names. That's all the specifics about the company. I'll have like several sentences in capital red letters, like do not send this out unless this is specific to X company. And so yeah, every time I redo one, I make, it's not like I already have Google in there and then I'm applying to Facebook and I just have to like look for Google in the document. It's all, I have a template that's all bold, highlighted red text that make sure you change this. Nice. Yeah, Yeah. that's a great tip. I use this all the time in my work for what I do professionally. And one thing I'll say is that if you have a typo in the meat of this letter, that's the part you're not editing, it also gets sent out to everyone that you send this, these things to. So make sure that you have a very professional template before you go in and double and double and triple and quadruple yes. check that uh, before you start blasting these out. I've had a couple <laughs> of embarrassing ones. Oh man. 
a great tool for that. I don't know if you guys use it or if, or if your listeners use it is Grammarly and it's just a, it's a, a Chrome extension and it checks your grammar and like syntax and everything for you. So if you're, if you screw up a word or if you forget a comma, it will tell you and you can fix it. So it's pretty awesome. Yes. I was going to yeah. bring that up because we use that at bigger pockets and it's amazing. I like to think that I'm pretty spot on, but I get fat finger typing and you know, you get, the wrong subject verb agreement. It's really a great extension. It's awesome. And I guess I just want to touch on one last thing with the, like the interviews and not so much scholarships because it's not so much face-to-face, but with like an interview, whether it's full-time or internships, so this is something that I kind of started to think about once. So the minimum fixed income fund, you have to you have to interview into it, like I said before. So once I got to a senior level, I started interviewing people. It was weird being on that side of the table, especially at such a young age, because you only know being on the interview E side of the table. But something that I like urge people to think about is think like an employer when you're at an interview. So if you just go in and you're pretty bland and you're like, oh, I kind of want to work for you guys and I'm, I'm pretty average, then you're, you're not going to be remembered. They're not going to remember your name. They're not going to like leave a memory in that employer's mind. But if you're thinking like an employer, like I need to do something that really stands out. So for example, I can't speak to every major, but I, I would bring a binded report in like a 20 page binded laminated report of a company I covered. And right off the bat, like this kid's legit, like nobody else is doing that. So it just, it set me apart right away. And just thinking like an employer, having that mindset, it just, it made you seem a lot more legit. It made you seem a lot more professional than the competition. And you stand out, you just stand out right away. Awesome. I think it's a great tip. That is a wonderful tip. Okay. So we've heard a lot about your successes. Let's hear about your failures. These failed clothing company business. I don't even know how you could fail at that because everybody wears clothes. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You didn't put any effort into it. Are you a millennial yes. and you're just entitled? And I started this company. I made a website. Come to me. If you build it, they will come, right? Why didn't that work out? So I did start social media. I like had like Instagram, Twitter. I had, all, I had the whole shebang. And I, had, I also started a website. It wasn't a great website. I didn't too much, put too much effort into it. But I I don't want to spoil my idea in case I do it later on. I won't tell you the name of the company or exactly what. It's a specialty clothing company. Okay. Fair enough. But I, I just, I was just way over my head and I was like, all right, I really don't know what I'm doing here. And like getting manufactured t-shirts from this warehouse in China and getting like specific customizations and stuff. I was like, I'm in way over my head. Kind of just dropped the whole idea and said, all right, this adventure is not for me. <laughs> So okay. I guess I, it was a lack of effort, but also just kind of jumping in over my head. Honestly, maybe if I stuck with it and just didn't give up myself, it could have been successful. Who knows? I can't turn back time like you said, Mindy, but yeah, it, it did fail. <laughs> it, also, another problem with this is this was an entrepreneurial venture, I assume, that needed some capital to get going, right? You probably needed like a couple thousand, maybe a couple, a couple, a couple hundred, maybe two, a couple thousand. And that's very scary for a college student to kind of put up that kind of money to start something, right? So I assume that your yeah. next venture here was probably something that was much less capital intensive. Is that correct with the tutoring? The tutoring was actually before. I, I said him in the wrong order. The tutor was tutoring was first. That oh, was zero. That was zero capital. That was like no capital intensity at all. I actually gotcha. started. Yeah, I started. I didn't even start a website. I didn't have social media or anything. Just kind of like wrote a word document of my business plan and started to advertise on Craigslist. And what do you know? Nobody contacted me. <laughs> I, did, I was just going to start by myself, build it up, and then hire tutors. Didn't work like that at all. And I did some tutoring back in high school, so I was like, oh, I got the expertise. You know, people, these people are going to hire me. Like they can see. I had my resume attached. It said the tutoring thing. I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be a gold mine. 
nobody, nobody reached out to me, <laughs> but it was, it was total, total lack of effort. I mean, I definitely could have built a successful tutoring platform if I wanted to, but I think that was more of just a kind of giving up. That was freshman year. So I was kind of just testing out college, you know, hanging out, probably drinking a few too many nights. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's move on to the one that did work. When did you start yes. the one that did work and what is that business? Okay. So I started Arsenal Discs June of 2016 and I t- I t- like I told you before, I worked at a disc what golf year of college shop. was that for you? Junior year of college. Yeah. So junior year of college, I already had this disc golf background. Like I said, I worked at the disc golf snack shack at my uncle's disc golf course, which was conveniently right across the street. So I'd been playing since I was about seven or eight years old. I was super into the sport for people who don't know disc golf. is just like ball golf, except you're throwing a plastic disc into what's called a pin. It's like a a metal basket with chains. You throw the disc in, there's drivers, mid-ranges, putters, the whole thing. It's this, it's basically the same as golf, except instead of hitting a club and swinging a club, hitting a ball into a hole, you're throwing a disc, a piece of plastic into a chain or a basket. <laughs> so just a quick background, because I know people, a lot of people are like, what's disc golf? So yeah, long story short, into disc golf, really into the community. I had a lot of friends in the disc golf community. I knew everyone that came to play. And so I was like, I want to start a disc golf business because it was the market was kind of unsaturated. There wasn't too many competitors. There was maybe eight or 10 major players and there was almost two, eight or men, eight or 10 major players in the uh, manufacturing market. There was, there's probably like two or 3 million global players. So I was like, this, this seems like a pretty good market. I could definitely, even with a 1% market share, I could start making some money. I just start uh, growing a business, having fun with this. So yeah, I reached out to my mechanical engineer friend. This is a friend from high school who was like just super into creating. And cause I don't have any of that expertise. I don't know how to create a CAD file. I don't know how to run flow tests on all these crazy programs, but he was into that. So he was like, all right, I'll work with you. I'll, I want to create these discs. So we started looking at like competitors, just what made them successful, what made them not. And we just kind of started at the drawing board. He started creating these CAD files, which is computer automated design or drawing. Don't ask me. I'm not an engineer. <laughs> you engineers will probably correct me and make fun of me that are listening to this episode. But yeah, he, he was making the CAD drawings. We do uh, wind tunnel tests. We do flow tests. These are all like on the computer. And then we'd get them prototyped uh, in China. We'd get them shipped back over to us for a very cheap cost. And then we'd, if we liked the design, we'd keep it. If not, we send it back. And then after we got five disc designs that we liked, we went and bought what are called molds. So this was a capital intensive project. Mold is basically a big steel block. And in the middle of the steel block is the shape of the disc. So think of like a Frisbee, except it's a little more compact with a bevel rim. So basically it's a big steel block. The middle is the shape of the disc. It fills up with hot plastic. It cools off, opens up, the disc pops out. That's what a mold is. So we bought the molds. We bought five molds. It was a little over 12 grand. Uh, We went half and half. I had been making a lot of money in college doing that. Like I said, I was making 400 almost every other week doing the tutoring. I was also doing alcohol sampling on the weekends. That does not sound as good as it actually was. It's not me tasting alcohol. It's me standing in the liquor store saying, hey, you want to try this alcohol? (laughs) And yeah, exactly. So it's it's not as glorious as it sounds. I was also doing side jobs. I was like raking, shoveling. Just I mean, I was just crazy about making money in college. So I had quite a stockpile. I probably had your only expense was this twelve dollar handle of booze, right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the pretty much my only expense was eating out, which was going to Applebee's once a month. <laughs> so my expenses were less than a hundred a month, and I was bringing in probably three thousand, maybe a little higher than three thousand a month. So I mean, my savings rate was pretty huge. And so by the time we started the company, I probably had 15 to 20 grand saved up. So I had the capital to 
build that mold. But that's not where the story ends. I mean, there's a lot more work getting the um, marketing, advertising set up, getting the online store set up, going through all the legality, getting the like design patents and all that stuff. It's a big process when you're actually manufacturing a product from scratch. At the end of the day, after we got all the manufacturing done, did all the prototyping, we were about 35 grand down in the hole, I guess. This is so this is split between me and my partner. So we were 17.5 each. We wow. did take a small personal loan from the family, unfortunately, with interest, because we, we I didn't want to just completely deplete my savings. So I had some money left over, but like in case my car broke down, you never know. I was like having a little bit of cash just sitting around. So we did take a small family loan that we did pay back with interest, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so that was quite a capital intensive project. But I mean, we were really, really into it. And I, I still am super into it. But as of this point, we've probably done 25 grand in sales. So we're about 15 grand still in the red. But I think at this, like probably this year we'll break even. And then after that, we'll just be smooth sailing, fun and profits. Awesome. This is what I wish I would have done differently in college. I think like I had a, I had a great time. I, I made some great friends. I got good grades, got a good job afterwards, but there's no reason why I couldn't have found a little bit more time to try my hand at a couple of businesses like, like you did in college where there's a chance to, you know, there's no risk. I mean, yours was a big risk. Let's, let's be clear. Yeah, it was <laughs> $5,000 invested in this business between two people that are college students, but, you know, taking a little bit of debt from the family, that's a big, big risk. But, you know, the other things you tried were not that capital intensive and didn't require that much money. And you can do that in college and fit that in with your schedule, even when you're working a couple of jobs and making $3,000 a month. And I assume getting good grades and prepping yourself for the job market. And this is what I think is a real power that is really being squandered by a lot of people that are in college, including myself when I was there. It was something that I, you could have done without too much impact on the college experience and whatever else you're trying to do to, um, to prepare yourself for the workforce. And I totally agree. And people commend me like, oh, wow, you're awesome. You started a company. But I mean, if I could turn back time, I would have done it with a lot less capital after. I don't know if you guys, I, you guys definitely know Alan Dodd and getting from the pop-up business school. After hearing him and talking to him, I, there's so many ways I could have done this for less money, but I didn't know. I mean, I was 19 at the time. I thought this is gonna be the best thing ever. And I mean, I was definitely like financially savvy and frugal, but I thought that this was like an absolutely no fail venture. I mean, luckily I did have some failed ventures. I picked up a lot of skills during my failures. Um, I know, I, I think it was Jamila Souffrant that coined failing forward. I really like that concept. I learned so much from my failures, just like setting up websites. So by the time I started this company, I was like, okay, I, I kind of know what I'm doing a, a little bit, but I think if I could turn back time, I would have maybe looked for like a, an equity split with like one of the bigger companies and tried to manufacture our disc through them. Be like, listen, we have this awesome new concept. We'll like do a 50% profit share. As long as you give us the facility and you let us like use your like molds and we can just make tweak, tweaks to it. That's probably something I would have pursued now. And it would have been like maybe two to $3,000 investment instead of 35 grand. But like I said, like you said, Mindy, no turning back time, no regrets. I did learn I mean, the, the information I've learned from starting that business is just like insane. Like it's so much more than I've learned in college, just jumping into the real world, starting a real business. You learn so much. And I really urge anyone who has like any inkling of starting anything to just start. And even if you fail miserably, you learn so much along the way. Yes, yes, yes. Alan, you mentioned Alan Donegan's episode. I believe he was on episode 17 and he just dropped so much knowledge on how to start a business super inexpensively. And like you said, you learn so much from doing it. Bigger Pockets is a, generally a real estate website and people keep saying, how do I get started? How do I get started? Just start. You will learn exactly. so much more 
Even if you lose money on your first deal, you will learn so much more than you could possibly learn from just reading books or listening to podcasts. I mean, those are very helpful to get you enough knowledge to get started, but then jump in with both feet. See what happens. I mean, don't, don't obviously don't jump in with both feet and take out, you know, a $50 million loan that you can't ever pay back. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. there's a lot of ways to start for a lot less money. There really is. It, it's, it was mind boggling when I listened to, I think I heard him on yours, you guys podcast. I listened to him on the choose a five podcast and just some of the stories that people had of starting a business. It was like, wow. Like I never even thought of that. Like the person who like opened a restaurant in a cafe that closed at 4 PM or something. I was like, that is the most genius idea ever. Brilliant. Just, people don't think outside of the box. I mean, myself included, I could have done it for way cheaper. I mean, luckily it's working out and like it is successful, but I, it could have failed miserably and we just have to suck it up and pay back and just like eat our loss. But I mean, there's just so many ways to do it better. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's move on to the last little bit here. What, what did you end up doing? So you graduated early from college and yes. in three and a half semesters, right? What did you have a job lined up and kind of what's your plan kind of coming out of this trip to Australia that we started with? Yeah, sure. So I, I actually was very, I'll hop back a little bit to the sophomore year. This is kind of where it all changed. Like I said, I got the five mindset. I got the five bug. Um, I really wanted to do investment banking. Cause I mean, you can really make some, insane money. You make like, you can make 125 grand easy out of call out of a four year degree. And that's just like unheard of money. And I was like, that is the best thing ever. But I didn't know that you worked 90 to hundred hours a week and you didn't have Saturdays hanging out with your friends or a girlfriend or your family. You work, you literally work 90 or hundred hours a week. And I was like, that is not the life for me, especially after reading about passive income and all these other routes. So I actually chose little, a less stressful job. Um, I found a finance job that actually compensates for overtime, which is pretty rare in the finance space. It's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, so definitely a better work-life balance. They actually like respect you and don't treat you like a pawn. They treat you like a person, which is also pretty abnormal in the finance space. I know Scott, you work for the worst company in America. I've heard you say, so you know how it is to just be treated like absolute dirt and they don't, they don't care about you. You know, you're just another pawn. So yeah, so I I, I worked a private equity gig after my sophomore year, and that was just really high intensity. I kind of realized that I did not want to do that. And then going to into junior year, I that's kind of where I found I found five sophomore year. Junior year, I got this better work life balance internship. Actually, doing it's doing commercial real estate, so kind of bigger pockets esque. Um, but at the end of the internship, they gave me the full time offer for next year. So I had going into senior year of college at the end of August, I had a full time offer. So I knew I was set even before I planned like leaving for Australia, which was huge. Like I don't have to look for a job. I'm just kind of hanging out. <laughs> awesome. What's your kind of plan coming back now? You're going to start this job, I assume in the next couple of months and begin your journey to FI. Is that, is that correct? So yeah, I'm, I start two weeks, uh, two and a half weeks after I get back. So I get back from Australia on June 26th and then I start work on July 9th. So disclaimer, I'm probably only going to work there for like a year. <laughs> it's just so hard to after just being exposed to this community and listening to the absolutely incredible stories of people branching out and just doing amazing things. I cannot sit at a desk from nine to five. I'm, I'm really just going to go out there. I already have the disc golf business going. I really think that's going to start picking up soon, especially we just moved to a new manufacturing facility. So things are going awesome. I, it's just like, I, I really want to do stuff that I enjoy. And a thing that I, I guess a beef I have with the financial independence community is that like work hard for 10 to 15 years, like, as hard as you can, just making as much money as you possibly can. And if you're not enjoying life during those 15 years, I don't see the point. I'm really about like do what I want when I want to do it type of mindset. 
And so that's kind of what I'm about. I really think I might only last like a year just to, just to say I did it and just to say I didn't wimp out and then kind of go off my own doing entrepreneurial stuff. So that's my game plan. <laughs> Long story short. Awesome. Yeah. I, I think I, I will warn you, I had a kind of a, a similar mindset, but then I discovered a job I really loved at exactly, company, which is totally so different. That may be, that may be something that you'll find is, you know, at, if you kind of approach life with this mindset where you're going through it and Hey, you know, I'm going to be able to do what I want. I'm going to build work towards Phi. Well, options begin expanding very rapidly for you very quickly within that first year. And you're going to only tolerate a position that you love pretty, pretty soon thereafter, I, I would suspect. So yes. uh, I think you're going to have a lot of good options for coming up for you, um, including entrepreneurship, maybe a job you love or whatever going yeah. forward. I totally agree. I mean, I think just from hearing what you guys say, bigger pocket seems like an awesome place to work and you guys like have a blast and it's like fun in the office. But I mean, my office is pretty, it's pretty cool. And my boss is a really awesome guy. It's just like, it's not, I don't love it. You know, I, I love doing the disc golf company. I love writing and teaching people about personal, personal finance. Like I like helping my family and friends set up their Vanguard accounts. Like that's, it's cool to me. Like I feel like I'm actually benefiting society when I at my job, I, I really don't feel like I'm doing that very much. So I don't know that's just an important thing for me. So I can, I kind of think that's why I'm going to branch out. Cause I really want, I really like having that sense of fulfillment, feeling like I'm making an impact on the world. But if you love your job, I mean, by all means, just do it, do it as long as you can. I'm not, I'm, I just don't like the people who work 10 to 15 years in a job they loathe just to hit that buy number. And then they expect themselves to magically be happy. Yeah. No, you are not going to magically be happy if you're sitting there at a job that you absolutely hate. And, exactly. you know, even if you do, you, you slug it out through this horrible job, you get to FI, your life doesn't automatically change. Like whatever you were doing before retirement is what you're going to be doing after retirement. So if you slug it out at work, you go home and you watch TV or you read a book or you just go to bed. That's what you're going to do even more of after you hit FI. So you need to have a plan for financial independence, not just like be working towards it and, and then stop. Exactly. Total, I'm t- in total agreement. So you really need the two, <clears throat> like you need to retire to something or else you're going to be miserable once you hit FI. Yes. Unless you really like watching TV. There's not that many good shows. There's not that many good shows. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now it's time for the famous four. These are the same four questions that we ask every guest. There's actually five because we don't know how to count. The first question is, what is your favorite finance book? So I'm going to have to go with the four-hour work week just because that kind of jump-started my FI mindset and just the idea that you could make passive income, that you didn't have to trade your time for your money. That was just a, a breakthrough moment in my five journey, like you don't have to trade your time for money. You can set up these passive vehicles. That's a really powerful statement. Yeah, that was definitely one of the most powerful ones for me as well. So if you haven't checked that out, go check it out. It's a staple, I think, of this, of this mindset. It goes along right up there with Rich Dad, Poor Dad and all these other books that talk about how to be, accumulate wealth and separate your time for your money. Definitely. All right. So what was your biggest money mistake that you made? Oh, so I kind of already covered this, but it's definitely the car. Um, Oh, if I could go back in time, I would have literally bought like a $1,500 beater that barely made it to school every day and just invested the rest. <laughs> I would have had like 30 grand by now. <laughs> I, I think it's great. I think it, I, we commonly hear this. It's the opportunity cost that, that really kills people. Uh, it, yeah. is, it is. Actually, the more I think about it, the more I think it might have been really this not taking a more entrepreneurial shot a little bit sooner, maybe the way that Cody did with his, with his disc golf company. Like that's really... That's really the big the big advantage that you I think that is one of the big advantages that you have kind of going into the the world is you have an expectation of solid sales every year from this side hustle you have, right? 
I think another huge thing, just my age, obviously it's not a fact that everyone can use their advantage, but I have the freedom to fail. So like at this point, I'm not used to eating fancy food. I'm not used to drinking expensive alcohol. I'm used to living like a college kid. Like I shared a six bedroom house with eight guys last semester <laughs> paying like paying 350 a month for rent. So, I mean, I'm not living this lavish lifestyle and it's not hard for me to kind of just maintain that lifestyle. And honestly, if all else fails, if I'm on the road and don't have a job and I'm living in a cardboard box, my mom would probably take me back in. <laughs> so at, at, at this age, I just have the freedom to fail, which is huge. And if you can take advantage of that early and like you said, just jump into entrepreneurship, just try your hand at whatever you can get a huge head start in the competition. Yeah, that's great. And I don't think it'll come to a cardboard box for you. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> I bet your mom would take you back. I hope so. <laughs> okay, so what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? Oh man, I wish I could yeah, I wish I could rewind my sentences from the last answer, but I think it's I think it's honestly so for anybody of any age. I mean, even if you're 60 years old and you have a few more years, you have 10 more years to retire, just try, start a side hustle or start a side business or anything. There's so many ways to make extra money nowadays with the internet and just online. And you can learn so much. You can learn almost anything on YouTube and Google. Like if you don't know how to build a website, you can learn in 24 hours just by YouTube and Googling. You can, you can build yourself a decent website. So I think so yeah, just jumping in and making the leap to, uh, not from a financial standpoint, don't jump in with your 401k and make the leap, but jump in emotionally and just don't be afraid to fail because you're going to learn mounds more from your failures than you are from your successes. From your successes, you're like, oh, this works. But from your failures, you'll learn what doesn't work. And then you'll learn how to change that, how to make it better. And you'll just, you'll just become a better person over and over again as you fail. The failures can be tiny. Like you can make a little change today. You can make a, or just take a step toward an entrepreneurial venture today. And even if it doesn't work out, you're going to learn something along the way. That's my biggest advice. Just do it. <laughs> I think that's great advice. Yeah. I, I mean, everyone can, can try something. And if you're not sure where to start, go back and listen to the Alan Donegan podcast. I think that was episode number. Alan was episode 17. So you can find that at biggerpockets.com slash money show 17. And in two weeks, we have Nick Loper from Side Hustle Nation will be our guest. And he, we're going to cover the concept of side hustles, who it's good for. Everybody, spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And note, and note that Cody's side hustle here is disc golf, something that he has been uh, a part of since he was 10 years old, right? In some capacity or another, maybe earlier playing from when he first started playing. Um, yeah. And that's, there's some sort of, there's some synergy there that probably gave you a little bit of an, a, an opportunity or, in, you know, incentive or desire to be successful in this particular one. So I think that's a good, uh, something to point out that you use a synergy that was in your unique to your situation. Exactly. And I think another point is that like my synergies are different from my business partner, James synergies, the mechanical engineer. So I'm good at marketing and finance, but I mean, I'm terrible at engineering, but like synergizing together, we kind of are the perfect crew for a disc golf company. Cause I, I can handle the finances. He doesn't know he would have no clue what profit margins are. I mean, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Jim. If you, sorry if you're listening, but I mean, he, he wouldn't know exactly what to expect for profit margins selling at wholesale prices. And like, I kind of didn't have that background and I knew how to model and knew how to tell if we're going to be profitable and just combining those and synthesizing our talents made us successful. You don't have to be the best at everything. If and things that you aren't good at, just find somebody who is and connect with them. Exactly. Love it. All right, so the toughest question of the famous four here, and sounds like you had some plenty of opportunities to tell these. But what is your favorite joke to tell at all those parties you've been at? <laughs> <laughs> all right, Scott. So I think you'll appreciate this one. So why can't you run through a campground? 
I don't know. What way? You can only ran because it's past tense. Oh, <laughs> that joke was intense. That joke was awful. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Mindy. I know you don't like those, but I had to give it for Scott. <laughs> That's okay. This isn't just the Mindy show. It's also the Scott show. <laughs> Okay, Cody, where can people find more about you? So on my blog, Flatify, I pretty much blog about personal finance, lifestyle, and life optimization. It's kind of a learn-as-you-go type of thing. So I'm young, I can fail, like I said before. So I kind of just try my hand at different ventures, uh, different investment strategies, different side hustles, and kind of do- just document my journey, share the things I've learned. So if people want to check me out, I will probably con- I'll, I'll reach back out to you within 24 hours. I'm pretty good at responding. If you just hit up the contact form on flytofi.com. So fly to FI. A quick plug is just that I do have an ult- the ultimate college guide post on my site, flytofi. And so that will cover pretty much anything that I missed or that people would like to hear about. I mean, we can only cover so much in a conversation on this podcast, but it's, it's a pretty extensive uh, document just showing pretty much every tip and trick I use, all the scholarship websites, all the internship tr- tricks, all the LinkedIn tricks, like a template, email, just a bunch of helpful stuff. So if people want to check that out or show their kid or whatever, um, I think that would be an awesome resource. Yep. And I'll awesome. put that in the... I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, the show notes for this show can be found at www.biggerpockets.com slash money show 26. That's money show two six. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Cody, thank you so much for getting up at the crack of dawn to come talk to us. Yeah, no problem. It's been a blast. <laughs> All the way from halfway across the world. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. In the States in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'll see you guys at FinCon. Um, <laughs> That'll be fun. Oh, you'll be at FinCon too? Oh, fantastic. Then we'll see you in uh, September. Yeah, see you in September. (laughs) Okay, awesome. Have a good day. You too. See you later. Thanks for coming. Wow, Scott, mic dropped. I love Cody. He is so forward thinking and just an absolutely perfect example of how to plan your future and how small tweaks now or even some bigger tweaks can yield huge results down the road. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a fantastic story. I mean, just a lot of good example in there. Um, Cody's obviously not missing out on what you traditionally think of as a great college experience, great high school experience. I mean, excellence in a lot of different areas. Um, sounds like a lot of fun. He's going on a, on a trip of a lifetime for six and a half months, seven months or so, almost right. And and then he's gonna he's gonna start a great job, and he's got a bunch of different options here that he can pursue. A great mindset of hey, I'm gonna keep my expenses low, and then see what happens. And I just think he's gonna it's gonna be so exciting to watch his career and the things that he goes goes on and does outside of college over the next couple of years. I'm I'm very excited to see that and follow his journey. Yeah, it's it's amazing what small changes now and and a huge mindset shift can just change your life without changing your life. I mean, he's not missing out on anything. Like you said, he's not, it doesn't change his life to drive a crappy car or live with a bunch of roommates or, you know, do all these things, but it changes his life down the road when he's able to retire when he's 24 or whatever ridiculous time frame he <laughs> has for himself. And he's going to do it too. He is just an, I'm going to do it. And then that's like written in stone. This is how it happens. And it just it's like it just falls into place, but it doesn't because he puts the hard work into it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's 10 years of smart decisions before this that have gotten him to this point. And that's where the options are kind of, you can, or that's why the options are materializing for him now. Yeah. Wow. Such a great show. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Scott, do you have anything else to add before we get out of here? This show ran really long because Cody just kept knocking it out. 
Nope. Uh, again, I think it's just a great show for uh, you to listen to. And then to think about who this could apply, could apply for. That's in, again, high school, middle school, college. Uh, that's kind of how do they think about how to start themselves up for a life of options? Yep. And if you have little kids, think of how you can help them start learning about money, start learning about hard work, because throughout Cody's whole story, it was just hard work got me here. Hard work got me here. Hard work got me here where I could make connections, which got me here. It's just over and over repeat hard work is and and when he didn't do the hard work, he didn't have success. Smart hard work. Smart hard work will get you every time. Okay. From episode 26 of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, this is Mindy Jensen over and out. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.